This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. We hope you'll subscribe and give us a good rating to help others find Out of Water. Welcome, friends, to another edition of the Out of Water Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lautenschlager, and joining me on the mic today is our pastor of spiritual formation, Reverend Sam Kastensmith, and we are welcoming you to week seven of All Things New, our message series that's going on right now at Rio Vista Community Church, in which we are going through uh, the writings of Solomon and the book of Ecclesiastes, and then just when that sort of soul-grinding numbness has put us into the dirt, <laughs> then we turn over to Philippians and we read what the Apostle Paul has to say about the reality of life in Christ, and that saves us from jumping off the buildings. Uh, <laughs> is that about accurate, Sam? That's about accurate. That's about, That's about accurate. <laughs> Um, one of the th- there's a couple of things that I do want to just before we jump into the text for today. There's a couple of questions that I've gotten from a number of people. Sure, um, and I keep hearing these questions, and it goes something like this: um, If Solomon is really saying these things as his own beliefs, um, will we see him in heaven? And so the question is: Is it is it really Solomon who's writing this stuff, or is it a thought experiment where he's saying, "Hey, what if"? And I think, I mean, maybe you'd want to weigh in on this too, but I think it's somewhere in between. Um, you know, I think Solomon legitimately has these thoughts, but he has these thoughts in those moments where he's taken his eyes off of the Lord. And so, you know, in our flesh, we're always having, you know, struggles with anxiety and despair and what kind of purpose we have in life and meaning and, and all of those things. And so Solomon genuinely has had these struggles that he's writing about, but ultimately he has not... Uh, given up hope in the Lord, he's writing these down as kind of a "what if there's nothing beyond the sun," and so then he's it's it's almost, it is a thought experiment in that like if I gave up the Lord, if there was nothing beyond the sun, then everything in this life would be meaningless. Right. Um, and the second part of that question is, uh, will we see Solomon in heaven? And I think the scripture speaks very clearly. We will absolutely see Solomon in heaven. And the reason why I think we can say that with confidence is when you have uh, Solomon, when he is born, God actually goes to the prophet Nathan and he says, I want him to have a specific name. Um, And he doesn't do that for many people in the scriptures, right? God doesn't insist upon a particular name for people, but he does for Solomon. And that name is Jedidiah, which literally in the Hebrew means beloved of God or friend of God. And so God names Solomon like my beloved, my friend. And so that, if you, if you can't have confidence <laughs> that yeah. Solomon's going to heaven, if God has declared him his personal friend and beloved, uh, then we're all in trouble. <laughs> Solomon's name was Jedediah? Yeah, you never hear that because we always call him Solomon. Sure. Um, but when, when the Lord is, it's Second Samuel chapter 12 in verse 25, and so you'll see, uh, it says, this is right after the whole deal with David, and it says, then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went into her and made love to her, and she gave birth to a son. They named him Solomon. The Lord loved him, and because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan, the prophet, to name him Jedidiah. 
Hmm. So we are, we, it's kind of like we're disobeying <laughs> by calling him Solomon. Right? The Lord wants him Jedediah. I'm going to stick with Solomon, you know. Um, but the Lord wanted to call him Jedediah, which is friend of God, beloved of God. And so we don't, we don't need to question <laughs> Solomon's authentic relationship with God. I mean, you see that in the Song of Solomon as well. The person who writes this soul-crushing book of Ecclesiastes is also the same person who writes this unbelievably beautiful uh, poem in the Song of Solomon where he just is gushing over the love of God. Well, and the other thing, too, is what I always tell people is just need to read Proverbs. Solomon mm-hmm. also mm-hmm. wrote the book of Proverbs, which is Proverbs is the anti-Ecclesiastes. Proverbs is here's all of the wisdom coming from God down to us. This is mm-hmm. God's perspective on things. And so if Ecclesiastes gets you down, Go read Proverbs. Same guy wrote it. The difference between the two books is dramatic. It's remarkable. Mm-hmm. If we ever really want to get in trouble, we'll do we'll do a pod, couple of podcast episodes on the Song of Solomon. We'll have, we'll have to issue like maturity yeah. warnings. Yeah, no, we won't. Because <laughs> there's no way that two dudes should be doing a podcast about the Song of Solomon. It just that should not happen. Uh, you know, and when people talk about questions like, "Hey, if Solomon really believes these things." Um, the answer that I would always give them is that I consider myself to be a little bit of a Thomas. It's like mm-hmm. my answer is all the time, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Yeah. Um, and I think that's, that's the way that a lot of us are. You know, um, There's no question of our faith, but there's also a lot of questioning in our faith. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. And, and I think that Solomon is the same kind of guy. Um, when I see people who have faith and have absolutely no doubt – um, that's special. I've met a few people like that in my life that have just had that, that faith that's so totally unshakable. But part of the problem is that it's, it's wrapped up in a lot of cases in behaviors that, that make them very extreme. Like this, this, that level of faith. It's like, you know, I'm just confident God's not going to let this bus run over me. So I'm going to step out in front of it. And I'm like, that's a lot of faith, but that's a lot of bus. You know, <laughs> I don't know if I do that, that kind of thing. So, um, when, when your faith begins to urge you to defy common sense, I like to tell people, remember, God gave you both. You know, God, God made you with the common sense that you have, and then he gave you the faith that you have as well. So let's not let them be in conflict. If your common sense is like stupid, then you should pay attention and go, that's stupid. I'm not going to do it. You know, walking out in front of a bus, never a good idea. Yeah. So we've talked about this too. Uh, Solomon wrote the book under a pseudonym, basically. He calls mm-hmm. himself Qualeth, Qualeth, something like that. Koheleth, yeah. Koheleth, Koheleth. Uh, I just remember there's a Q in there uh, and an <laughs> F on the end. Uh, Koheleth, which is which just means teacher, right? It's, it literally is one who convenes. Okay. So it's like you're bringing the, the crowd together and you're addressing them. So it could be a teacher, a preacher. People translate it differently. Uh, but that's the idea. You're, you're giving a talk to a crowd. And I think the fact that he uses a, a sort of a pen name there is, is his way of sending us a pretty big signal that, look, this isn't really me. Uh, I mean, it is me, but it's, it's, it's a very carefully curated version of me to make a point. So the point this week, um, I thought was interesting because it touched on the subject of oppression. Um, the, the passages from, uh, Ecclesiastes chapter four and, it's actually the first six verses of chapter four, but the first three verses were the ones that touched on the idea of oppression. Uh, Ecclesiastes four, one through six, or one through three rather reads, again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. 
and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive, but better than both, is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Obviously, that verse is talking about oppression, right? Mm -hmm. And oppression is is on the tip of everybody's tongue these days. Everybody's talking about who is oppressing them and whether they're being racially oppressed or oppressed because of their gender or oppressed because of their religion, whatever. Everybody's being oppressed by somebody for some reason. Mm -hmm. I don't think I've met anybody who has said to me, I'm never oppressed by anyone. That just, I just don't hear that. Mm -hmm. Um, And yet, what struck Solomon here, Sam, is that there was no one to comfort the oppressed. It's yeah. almost like he's saying, look, oppression is a fact of life. Where the evil is, is that no one is there to comfort them. Yeah, that's, that's really fascinating. And, and our, our whole world seems to be divided these days, particularly in the political realm. You have both sides. And, and the whole nature of the way our society functions now is dividing people into you know, victims and villains, and both sides do it. You know, one side will point and say, you're the ones who are making the world difficult and unjust and, and miserable. And so, you know, it's kind of the rallying cry, let's go get them, you know, and then the other side is pointing over and saying, you're the ones who are ruining the world. And you're calling all like-minded people to say, let's go get them. And Solomon is saying, look, the problem, like you said, is not you know, the the great tragedy, yeah, oppression, we need to fight against, the Bible calls us to fight against oppression, but he's saying there's no one to comfort them. Like, there's nobody who has any mercy. There's nobody who comes with humility to say, hey, man, I see your pain, and I want to I be with you in this. I want to understand this. And so, uh, the idea of this, this society that Solomon is describing sounds a lot like what we're experiencing today because mm-hmm. there is a lot of people who are feeling on both sides of every issue, right? Right. Who are feeling like everything is falling apart and it's all their fault. And both sides are in this misery, this pain of anxiety of looking at everything and feeling really um, desperate, honestly. Right. Yeah, I mean, in Isaiah uh, 117, it says, uh, look to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. So the people mm-hmm. of God are to try to correct oppression. That's that's a, sort of a given. But mm-hmm. the great evil is when oppression takes place and there's no one to comfort them. Yeah, I mean, and then, and then Solomon says this craziness where he says that it would be better not to have been born at all. Like the fact that these people are being oppressed and there's no one to comfort them, that is so bad that it would be better that you and I, Sam, just never existed at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's hardcore. <laughs> that's pretty hardcore. <laughs> he's, he's been hardcore repeatedly. Yeah. You know, we, we've got the, you know, stillborn is better than we are. You know, now it's, you're better to not be born at all. Right. Um, and, but there's, there's this thing where Solomon, remember this whole thought experiment. As he's saying there's oppressions that are done under the sun. He's he's looking just at there's there's no supernatural, there's nothing, and so you just look around and you see all these oppressions. But I think one of the things, you know, if you look at people who suffer together, it draws them closer together. And and one of the things that this fails to see, and this is one of the things that we have failed as a people to really understand. Is this whole book, you know, when when Solomon's writing, he's essentially the whole cases he that he's making is 
everyone in this world is oppressed. Right. Like, there, there is the wealthy. Solomon's not making the case here saying, oh, I'm wealthy and I have all this stuff and therefore I'm not oppressed. He's saying, I'm miserable. Like, this world is oppressing me. And so, the scriptures come with this idea that we all have a common oppressor. It's, it's, it's what brings about this fallen world. It's, it's the enemy from the beginning, right? The, the one to whom God is promising, I'm going to come and crush your head and I'm going to make all things right. But the greatest feat that the enemy, Satan, has ever done is just to take us in our suffering and to divide us and make us hate each other, to say, you're the problem for all, and nobody's looking at the true source of oppression, which is the one who brings sin and envy and pride Mm -hmm. and stokes it and just makes us even more hateful and brings about more oppression and more divisiveness. And man, if we could stop for a moment and recognize that in our common humanity, there's no race, there's no gender, there's no political affiliation that is immune to this feeling of being oppressed by this world. There's no one who's walking around having figured it out outside of the Lord who's saying, ah, I feel so much freedom. This is so wonderful. (laughs) This world is just in my lap. Like, but, but we try to make everything about us and them. Right. And Jesus does not play that game. He, he really won't. And, and I love that. It was kind of when we were studying this passage last week, you know, I had a number of conversations with, with different people. Um, but Jesus not only goes after the oppressed, and those are the, the super obvious stories, right? Like, the, and they're the beautiful stories. They're the ones that we're like, oh man, I love Jesus so much. Look what he just did for that person, you know? Like when he comes to the woman at the well who is, has, is totally humiliated by her culture, right? She has no dignity. Mm-hmm. And Jesus comes and shows her dignity. And when the disciples come back and they see him talking to this Samaritan woman, oh my goodness, he doesn't care. Like he, he kind of huddles over her and takes the arrows from his disciples because she's precious to him and he wanted to comfort her. You see the same thing in John 8, the woman that's about to be stoned for adultery, right? Jesus gets in the middle of that, and he, he kind of takes all of the rage and gets it on him and then huddles over her and kind of takes the, the arrows, in a sense, for her because he wanted to comfort her in the middle of that oppression. And, and man, when we see that, we're like, that's right. That's Christianity. We, we're all for that. Like, cover the oppressed. But when you see Jesus do some other things, like, for example, when he's about to go, he's a week away from his crucifixion, and he's traveling through the city of Jericho, and there's a guy that lives in that city of Jericho that has viciously oppressed every person in that city, and his name is Zacchaeus, right? He's a and tax Jesus, collector, yeah. He's a tax collector, so which, which if you've ever heard, you know, Pastor Tom does a great job with the history of this, explaining it. But a tax collector is somebody who bought, bribed the Roman officials to get this office of tax collectors because he knew where all the money was. And so he's betraying his own people because he knows who's got money and where they keep it. And so, and then he's going after it with Roman soldiers at his disposal to go collect, oppressively so, from these people. And Jesus comes into town, right? And mm-hmm. all these people are oppressed. And what does he do? He looks up into the tree with this tiny guy, Zacchaeus, and he says, Hey, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm going to have dinner at your house today. And you know what the scripture says? Oh, the whole town is outraged. Sure. How dare you have anything to do with this oppressor? 
And you know what Jesus does? He huddles over Zacchaeus and takes the arrows from the other side. Mm -hmm. And there is something in the character of the church that we have lost is, you know, what we tend to do, like, and, and man, when we see oppression, it should anger us, right? Right. But we have reached a point today where it is very fashionable for those in the church to grab pitchforks and, and light torches and to go after people. And Jesus does not allow that. He mm-hmm. offers tremendous comfort to the oppressed, and he goes after the people whom we would consider oppressors because he recognizes that there is a greater spiritual reality behind the physical reality. Sure. And Zacchaeus is tremendously oppressed, mm-hmm. but not in the way this world would see it. I've had this conversation with people about Zacchaeus because I've made the same comment. Jesus protected Zacchaeus in a sense from the crowd. And uh, they're like, but Zacchaeus was the oppressor. And I said, mm-hmm. yes, but he was, as you just said, he was also tremendously oppressed. Zacchaeus had become a wealthy man. And so now Zacchaeus realized that his wealth meant nothing. His mm-hmm. wealth was going to get him nowhere. In fact, he was, you know, when he encountered Jesus and felt that grace and that forgiveness, his first action was to stand up and say, I'm going to restore to the people I took mm-hmm. money from following an Old Testament code that acknowledged that he robbed from them. Mm-hmm. He was going to restore it fourfold, you know, which is what you, which is what that was the penalty if you stole from somebody. So he was admitting his guilt in that. In addition to that, it says that Zacchaeus was a small man of a small stature. Mm-hmm. I'm guessing that probably didn't go over really well when Zacchaeus was growing up in Jericho. He yeah. probably wasn't a guy that they looked and said, here's mighty Zacchaeus coming <laughs> down the street. I'm guessing he probably mm-hmm. was impressed and mocked because of his stature. And when he had the opportunity to get the Roman soldiers on his side, <laughs> it was Zacchaeus breaking loose, getting ready to give some payback <laughs> to these people that had been after him. I just see it. I see all of that in there, and and what you I've see, never thought of that. Is that's, that that's probably true? Yeah, is that Jesus comes right into the middle of that and says, "None of you understand. Mm. None of you understand what's going on here." <laughs> you know, and and he and instead of pushing back at Zacchaeus, how can you treat your countrymen this way? Or pushing back at the crowd and saying, "How can you treat this? You know, this guy Zacchaeus so bad from birth." He doesn't do any of that. He just forgives Zacchaeus. He lets him know about forgiveness, about grace, about and and Zacchaeus's reaction to feeling that freedom is to stand up and say this money means nothing to me. Mm-hmm. Which which we knew anyways because Solomon's been telling you if you have a lot of money, <laughs> it means nothing to you. Yeah. And not and, only that, but it has enslaved you. Yes. So Zacchaeus is the, is living the book of Ecclesiastes in front of us. Um, you know, I just think that the Bible's full of so many great stories like that. Gosh. And when you, when you look at, when you really take the time to stop back, okay, I got it. Zacchaeus is a wee little man. We all sang that in Sunday school. Well, what does that mean in that culture that, that, that culture in which your physical prowess and virility, that established you as a person, mm-hmm. you know? So I'm just thinking this guy probably went through his whole life being dumped on by everybody around him. And the first time he got a Roman centurion between him and the guy that made fun of him his whole life, he's like that one, that one there. He's got money. Jesus was not having any of this. Let's pick sides and oppress each other. You know, you know, and he cashes in chips in both sides to offer dignity to somebody who desperately needed it. Mm-hmm. You know, it says when, when, so when Jesus walks by and he says, you know, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm, I must stay at your house today. It says that when, when all the crowd saw it, they grumbled and said, he's gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. 
And and so, like, you get Jesus is cashing in chips with the crowd. But notice what happens here. It's when Jesus shows dignity to the oppressor. It's when it's when Jesus says, you know, hey, I see you, and I want to come and eat dinner with you, which is a huge thing in the ancient world. It's a sign of friendship and really goes beyond that. But it's at that point that Zacchaeus says, I'm walking away from my oppression. Like, wait a minute, you, you've shown mercy to me. You, you've given me this thing that I've been longing for. And now all of a sudden he changes. Mm-hmm. And now he says, you know, I'm going to give away half of my goods. I give to the poor. If I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And, you know, he has this, this great moment. But where does that come from? It comes from being the recipient of love. It wasn't conditional. God doesn't come. Jesus doesn't come and say, hey, if you give away your stuff, if you, if you stop oppressing, I'm going to love you and show you dignity. He doesn't do that. Our society, <laughs> I mean, the whole cancel culture stuff where it's like, man, if you're on the wrong side of the issue, we're coming at you with fangs out and we're going to destroy you. Right. If, if these people, and I say these people, I need to be pointing my fingers back at myself. I get that. But if we're serious about genuinely wanting heart change from people, it's not, I'm coming after you to destroy you. That never works. Right. It just creates more resentment on the other side. But when, when Jesus comes and says, hey, Zacchaeus, I see you, and I want to be your friend. I want to eat at your house today. That changed Zacchaeus. And right. suddenly, he's got all the freedom to love. Like, hey, I want to restore. I want to do these things. I've been invited into relationship, and now my identity is not in this stuff. And so, that's the, you know, if we're, if we're going to seek justice, if, you're, if we're going to sign people up to, to fight oppression that's under the sun, right? Right. It has to come from a place of love and freedom. Because if you come up to me, and, and Tom mentioned this in a sermon on Sunday, but if you come to me and you say, hey, you have to do this, and you come at me only with the weapons of guilt and shame, I might do them for a while until no one's looking again. Right. But guilt and shame are not good motivators. Right. Love and freedom are. And that's the thing is that, as you said, Jesus didn't say to Zacchaeus, straighten up and I'll love you. We get it backwards. You know, we're like, okay, well, if you prove yourself to be somebody worthy of our love, we'll love you. But that doesn't change the person. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, and Jesus, Jesus is going to come and he's going to show us yep. that there is nobody under the sun who yep. does not need the comfort of God. And so the church's role, even with people who hold beliefs that we find, you know, abhorrent, aberrant, whatever, like, no, our job as, as ministers of the gospel, as people of faith, is to take the comfort of God to them. Because right. the only way you're going to soften the heart of an oppressor is to make him or her feel valued that right. their identity isn't about maintaining all the things that they have to oppress it's it's finding that they're valuable and something outside of that and that's the lord but also 
not not to forget the tears of the oppressed. Mm-hmm. You know, okay. I mean, that's the thing is that I, um, I I think I do think Sam that gets lost in all of this mm-hmm. is that we're so quick to want to go and confront the oppressors. We're so quick to want to go fix the injustice that we forget that really what God wants us to do first is to bring comfort to the people that the you know comfort and mercy to the people that need it. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, He still expects you to go talk to, you know deal with the oppressors, but. We walk right past the people that are hurting. We walk right past the people that have suffered sometimes at the hands of oppression, and and we don't stop to comfort them because we're going right up front to tell people what we think. Mm-hmm. And uh, man, you know, we would be well served to recognize that it is the tears of the oppressed that Solomon caused called a great evil. So after he gets done talking about it, would be better if you know none of us had been even existed at all to see this great thing. Then he talks about something with envy. Mm -hmm. In verse 4, it reads, uh, Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. In my notes that I did for the devotional last week, I said that if if oppression is a blunt instrument that is relate that wrecks relationships, envy is a subtle poison that does the same thing. It's like envy mm-hmm. will come into a relationship between two people and it will destroy it, but it eats away at it from the inside. It compels people to act in ways that they can't even understand themselves why they're doing it. Um, it is such a terrible poison. Going back to the the beginning, you know that first murder. That's that's a sin that's born entirely out of envy, and it's this self obsession. And and not to not to park too long on on Cain and Abel. It's just fresh in my mind when when they come. You know what's interesting about that is it's it's not this righteous you know believer you know and Abel and this unbelieving wicked person in Cain. You know, they're both coming to give offerings to God, which is a, a pretty sobering morning, right? Right. You know, both of them are in the church. Both of them come and say, hey, here's my offering. Abel's offering it with kind of a selfless attitude of, God, you're worthy of this, and so here's my very best. I'm excited to see you smile. And Cain comes and says, well, you owe me, and here's my stuff. Now I've done my part. Give me back, you know, what I deserve. And God looks at the heart of Abel and says, I like that. He looks at Cain and says, you know, that's, I'm not going to show favor on that. And Cain is absolutely enraged with envy. Mm-hmm. Like, how in the world could he get this favor? And I didn't. And it just chews at him and eats him up. And and this has been the story ever since. I mean, it's the story of the Pharisees, right? It's the story of, of you know, we have to earn it. I'm going to prove myself better, you know. And and the Christian life calls you away from envy because there's nothing that you have ultimately that the Lord hasn't given to you. And so we live in a world where uh, it's it's keeping up with the Joneses. It's proving that I've I'm a better this than you, and I'm a better that than you, and you know I've got more of this than you. Uh, I'm richer. I got a bigger house. I've got all this stuff, and and. The Lord is saying, absolutely, that is, that is the ethic of this world, but it's not the ethic of the kingdom. The mm-hmm. Christian cannot be motivated um, with that sense of, of envy. 
and you know speaking in terms of oppression when you get into the book of James at the very end James is this you know hard hitting if you want to punch to the stomach um, James is one of those where when you read it you're like good grief like I need to my, my faith feels weak um, but talking about the coming judgment at the end you know James ties this idea of chasing and envy and building up and greed and all this stuff and he ties it to oppression because usually you know if you're if you're living a life out of envy and greed you're doing it at the expense of the life that God has called you to which is a life of charity and a life of comforting the oppressed and and showing generosity and so in James chapter 5 he says come now you rich weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You've lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. And so what the, what the Lord is getting at here is in all the ways that you are, are operating out of envy, storing up for yourself, trying to compete against others, to lift yourself up above everybody else, right? The Lord is saying that's not the ethic of a Christian, the Christian is looking to disadvantage himself and, and his surplus and all of his blessings. He's looking to disadvantage himself, to advantage those that are oppressed. Mm-hmm. And in James, it says, you know, on that day, on the day of judgment, when I've got all of the poor and all of the laborers and all of the people that have suffered, all your wealth is going to be stacked up right alongside them, and all of their suffering is going to be on display, and all of your wealth is going to be sitting there testifying against you. He did nothing. He oh. stored it all up for himself. He envied and he joined the rat race and he tried to prove that he was better than everyone else and he did so at the expense of the design that God has called him to, which is to lift up the oppressed, to help those that are struggling. And on that day, all that envy, all that storing up, all that trying to be better than everybody else is going to sit and testify against you. And that's kind of a terrifying thought, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um but that's that's what the Lord is after, you know. He refers to himself, you know, as God of the orphan. He's a God who who chases after the widow and the downtrodden and the foreigner, and he's somebody who always lifts up and is a defender of the powerless. And so, if you're somebody who has been given some semblance of power, the human fallen nature is like, I've got to get more. I've got to prove myself. I've got to show everybody that I'm better than everyone else. And the Lord is saying, no. Now is the time to lay that aside and show the world that I, God, am more important than everything else, and I call you to help your downtrodden brother and sister. You know, the Old Testament, Proverbs 14.30, says, A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. And then Mm -hmm. in 1 Corinthians 13.4, Paul writes, it says, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast, and it is not arrogant. It's like uh, 
this is a disease that that gets us from the inside. Uh, this particular condition, um, I I said that it's it's like Solomon sees that it's better to have a handful of peace than a two fisted grab of never enough. Um, <laughs> you know, and uh, and I do think, by the way, that that I this, love that line. Can you say that again? I said Solomon says that the better way is to recognize that a handful of peace is worth more than a two fisted grab of never enough. Um, <laughs> How did he put it? He says a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and a striving after wind. Better that better to have, you know, it's better to have one bird in the hand than two in the bush. You know, there's a lot of these old sayings that came from from Proverbs or from uh, from Solomon, from either Proverbs or from Ecclesiastes. Uh, I think we have two of them right here. You know, Solomon is pointing out the folly of keeping up with the Joneses. And he's telling you that a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, it's a. Uh, and when you kind of come to the end of that, the first thing that I think envy robs people of is the ability to be thankful because you got somebody there that's trying to do the keeping up with the Joneses sort of thing. That idea that I have to, I have to have what my neighbor has. And before we turned the microphones on and started recording, I made a, I made a crack about, um, somebody that's on our staff that lives in the same neighborhood as I. And I said, Sam, I'm going to have to get the AT&T fiber internet at my house now because this other employee (laughs) has it at his house. And I said, and I can't let him be faster on the internet than me. Now I said that jokingly, you know, I mean, I've got gigabit cable. I just thought the fiber is better. Um, And I was making a joke about it. But the point is that, that that's the kind of mode. That's the thing we're talking about here, which is, there's, you know, I look at this marvelous technology, if I was being serious, which I wasn't, again, disclaimer, disclaimer, but if I looked at all the marvelous technology that I've been gifted with by the by these incredibly brilliant minds that have invented all this stuff that allow me to do my job and all the things that I do, and I were to go, that's worthless, man. What I want is what the guy across the street has, because his is even better than mine. I have just completely lost all ability to be thankful for what it is that I, what it is that I have. Mm -hmm. And God is saying to us through, you know, through messages like this from Solomon that, and this was, this was part of the thing last week too, if you recall. If you are able to be satisfied with what I have given you, what you have, if you're able to be satisfied with that, First of all, that's a gift from God. And secondly, that's the thing that's going to bring you satisfaction and peace and quietness and the absence of toil and the absence of strife. So this goes back to the, the passage I think we talked about last week, but it's in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. Mm-hmm. And I, just, I love yep. this. It says, yep. everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them. He's talking about those that are blessed. And he says, and to accept his lot... And rejoice in his toil. That is the gift of God, for he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. If you're envying, if you're saying, you know, never enough, never enough, I need more, I need more, you can't enjoy it. You, you can't, that's not accepting the lot. It's not looking at what God has given you and saying, man, you have been so gracious to me and, and I just kind of want to sit and be great. I'm terrible at this, by the way, and sit and just ponder all the ways that you have blessed me, like beyond measure, and just be thankful for it. I mean, I'm I'm always looking to the next thing, like, you know, I move right past the blessing and what's next, what's yeah. next. Yeah. Um, but I think that's human nature, you know, even, even, even in ministry, <laughs> you know, like if somebody came up and said, man, I really enjoyed so-and-so's sermon, 
you know, my heart immediately. What's what's my heart doing? Yeah, what's wrong with my what sermon? What about my sermon? Yeah, I <laughs> preached last week. You didn't like my sermon? Yeah. Yeah. Well, why didn't you mention my sermon? Like, <laughs> it, it, we immediately go to that, and that's why, you know, and that's not, you're not abnormal <laughs> for being envious. You have a fallen nature. Right. But that's also why, you know, the Gospels call us, Jesus calls us to daily take up our cross. There's a lot that we've got to crucify, and that envy like you talked about will just poison us. Mm -hmm. And so we've got to let that go and focus on gratitude and the things that are going to to pull good things out of us. So, as you mentioned, thankfulness and and lack of envy, I think that's the perfect pivot (laughs) (laughs) to Philippians, because our passage in Philippians is in Philippians chapter 1, this verses 3 to 8, but the first two verses in particular, first three verses in particular, Paul writes, I thank God. Right off the bat, he's talking about thanking God Mm -hmm. in all my remembrance of you always, in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul is thankful continuously for the Mm -hmm. Philippians believers. That's the the Greek tense of the verb there means the action is ongoing. He wasn't thankful just, he's not thankful just once and he's not thankful just when he's praying. He's thankful continually because of their partnership in the gospel. That right there is a pretty strong pivot from Mm -hmm. I'm consumed with envy, I can't be happy with anything that I have, to Paul saying, I'm continuously thankful for those of you that stand with me in the work of the gospel. Um, quite a, quite a, a big shift there. Yeah, there's, there's, whenever I come across things like that where, where Paul makes these comments like always and every prayer of mine, you know, that I'm grateful for you always or, you know, pray without ceasing. You should always be doing it. It's like, how in the world do you do that? Um, there's there's a book that's written by a guy named Brother Lawrence. It's short, and they're little letters that are sent back and forth. But in this book, like people would actually, he was a monk, and people would actually come just to watch him. And he he had a job that was menial, like washing dishes. But he his idea was, I'm going to practice the presence of God. I'm going to see if I can make it through the day always recognizing that I'm in communion with God no matter what. He's always beside me. His, he's always singing over me. He's always there, you know, delighting in me and rescuing me and showing his affection to me. And I want to go through my day constantly being mindful that he abides with mm. me and mm. that I abide in him. And people would travel just to watch him because he was such a joyful man, and his life was so abundantly influenced by the power of the Spirit. And when I come across like words like this with Paul, you know, he'd lost so much, but he was always mindful of the Lord being with him. He mm-hmm. he just he reveled in the goodness of God, and so it's like when he says from prison, "I thank my God." And and all my remembrance of you, always and every prayer of mine for you, making my prayer with joy, like, holy cow. And I think the key, you know, to start with thankfulness, but what are you thankful for? Mm-hmm. When, you, when you're aware, when you start disciplining your mind to recognize and to always be aware that God is abiding with you and you're abiding in him, the more you recognize that, the more you can't help but be thankful like, if I find myself in envy, I can guarantee you I'm not thinking about the Lord who gave his life for me, right. you know, right. walking alongside me. Yeah. How could I be envious of anything if I have that treasure? Mm-hmm. But the more you're mindful, 
the more you're mindful of how wonderful he is and how much he loves you and how intimately he is with you, you know, man, there's so much to be thankful for. And, and envy is just almost impossible at that point. Wasn't that Brother Lawrence book called Practicing the Presence of God? Yeah, it, yeah. it's great. Some of the letters are a little bit difficult, but there's some of them you read, and if it just it's otherworldly. I'd encourage everybody to read it. Yeah. Uh, but there's passages in there where you're like, oh my goodness, I want that. I want that. Because um, he is so lost in the love of God that he's radically transformed from you. <laughs> like I said, people would go to visit him just to watch him wash dishes because it was so otherworldly. Yeah. So here we have Apostle Paul who is stuck in prison. Um, he's chained to the Roman guards. He's probably not in a dungeon. He's probably in, in a house, but he's he can't leave. He's under house arrest. He can't go anywhere. And you know, and he's thankful. Even in the midst of all of that, because of the of the Philippian believers, and I think that it's the perspective of that he lays it out so well in First Corinthians uh, chapter three verses five through nine, because there's this conflict where some of the people are saying, "Hey, you know what? We follow Paul," and others are saying, "No, no, no, no. we follow Apollos." You know, one of the other preachers and evangelists of that time. And gee, I don't know, Sam, where have we ever seen that where people cultishly follow a leader? <laughs> You know, rather than following the Lord. Well, this is what Paul had to say about it. Paul says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one. And each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Mm. You know, Paul's perspective is there. Paul's perspective is that, you know what? It doesn't really matter if, if, you know, if, if I plant and the, and the guys back in the church in Philippi water and people come to faith. You know what? It's all God who gets the glory. You know, his perspective was that whatever part he could play in the ministry, in the gospel, in getting out the gospel. That was all that he, that's all he needed was just an opportunity to do the job that God had given him to do. It's like the opposite of envy. It's the mm-hmm. anti envy. This thing of, of like, you know what? It, I am sold out for the mission. I am on board for the big picture. I'm here to do my part. Because I know that then God can bring the big picture around. God can accomplish the mission. I, I love the, you know, what then is Apollos? Who is Paul? <laughs> you know, he's like, none of us matter, guys. You know, you're missing the point here. Yeah, I, I, I remember reading when after the Reformation, Luther initially, I don't know if he, if he kept this conviction, but in, at least initially, he was really upset when he heard that people had begun to call themselves Lutherans. And and his line in response to that was something like, you know, very similar to what Paul says. He's like, why in the world did I – was I crucified for you? Why in yeah. the world would anyone call themselves after my name, stinking bag of maggots that I am? I yes. just remember that, stinking bag of maggots, <laughs> <laughs> as only Luther would. I You know, and and frankly, I think that probably a lot of the people that, that started these great movements in the Reformation would be appalled at some of the things that have been done with their name attached oh, to it over sure. the years. You know. For sure. Um. So then Paul goes on to say this, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. 
It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. Now, that some people have said, and I think that there's an element of that, that, that Paul was grateful in this case, and, and that reference that he makes, the partakers with me of grace in my imprisonment, was this idea that, that they were supporting him in some kind of tangible way, that they supported him, uh, you know, in terms of with money or food or whatever. They were taking care of his needs or, or helping with that. And I think that's also part of it. But I don't want to set aside this thing that, you know, that Paul is talking about where they found themselves. Paul in jail and the Philippians not in jail, but helping somebody who was. He saw both of those as being partakers of grace. He saw his imprisonment as an act of grace. He believed that God was being gracious to him by putting him in prison so that he was going to have the opportunity to defend and confirm the gospel. He knew that when he got up Mm -hmm. to speak, he was going to be defending the gospel to people that didn't believe it and to the people there who had accepted it, who did believe the gospel, he was going to confirm it and establish it in their hearts. And for that opportunity, he was willing to, to sit in prison and say it was a gracious act to be in prison, so I have this chance. Yeah. It, and it's such a beautiful perspective. Like Paul is, you know, Paul has taken on the mindset of Jesus. You know, Jesus came into this world uh, with a bunch of people who hated him, and he knew he was walking into that. He knew he was going to be betrayed. He knew he was going to face people's scorn, but he loved them enough to press into their hatred, knowing that on the other side they would be redeemed, right? And and here at the beginning of Philippians, you have Paul who's who's giving thanks <laughs> for his suffering. Almost, you know, like hey, th- this is a good thing that this is God's grace that's allowed him to suffering. But the reason why he can say that, and I love the way that he does this when he signs off at the very tail end of of Philippians. Right, so here he is in chains, and he's writing to these people saying, "Me being in chains is is not an accident. Like I trust God's goodness in this." But when he signs off, his, his sign-off, he says, greet every saint in Jesus Christ. The brothers who are with me greet you. And then he says this. I love this. He says, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Now, why is that absolutely beautiful? <laughs> especially those of Caesar's household, what Paul is saying is, this ministry, my ministry of chains, is already bearing fruit. Mm-hmm. The Romans are coming to faith now. Because I'm here. Yep. And so he says, you know, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. In other words, I might be in chains, but the kingdom of God is advancing into Caesar's household through this prison. Yeah. <laughs> and that's just awesome. It's just awesome. And that's I, Paul's heart. I think we talked about this when we were going through uh, Ephesians, which is another one of the prison epistles, the letters that Paul wrote while he was in prison, is that um, that was probably one of the great movements that resulted in the spread of the gospel of that time, because these Roman officials that were around Paul, the guards and other military officials that were around him that would listen to this guy talking and writing all the time and you know hearing his words, the ones that came to faith at some point, you know, natural progression of things, they're going to be sent out to be the, the mm-hmm. governor or the commander of some little stations. And literally what Paul was doing in Rome is that he was creating seeds that the Roman, you know, government 
mechanisms would then plant all around the Roman Empire mm-hmm. by sending these members of Caesar's household who were also believers to go out and do the work of the Romans, but also mm-hmm. to do the work of the gospel. And so God was using even that bad circumstance with Paul. And Paul could see that. He understood that. Like you say, he's, he stuck that little thing at the end, those in Caesar's household. He was letting everybody know, I understand why I'm here. I see the big picture. And Philippi was a tremendously important city in ancient Rome. So here's a little nerd alert, some, some Roman history. Initially, Rome was was founded as a republic, but Julius Caesar came along. He started accumulating power. The Senate got really nervous about him, and so the famous uh, rebellion or assassination, Brutus and Cassius, put Caesar to death. They they planned his assassination. And so this begins this war, a civil war in Rome that's between the imperial forces, which is Octavian, who will become Augustus, and then they're going after Brutus and Cassius. And so they establish bases, their military go, they go to Philippi, and they go to Thessalonica. And so Octavian and Mark Antony, they come to battle against Brutus and Cassius' Republican Guard, and it's the Battle of Philippi where the imperial forces crush the Republican forces. And after that, the Roman Empire makes Philippi an outpost for its soldiers. And so lots of very influential people would have been in Philippi. This has become a a military city now at this point. So lots of high-end Roman officials would have been in Philippi. It's also why if you go through the the letter of Philippians, you'll see lots of, of very, you know, almost language that would involve athletics and soldiers and, you know, you're striving and racing Mm -hmm. and doing all those kinds of things. Um, But this, yeah, this is a tremendously strategic city. And so to have to have won over people from Caesar's household, when the saints in Philippi get a letter saying, hey, Caesar's household is now coming to faith. It was like all of those Roman soldiers and Philippi would have been like, oh my goodness, like this is happening. Yeah. And it would have been a great encouragement to those Roman soldiers. Mm, mm. You know, before we can't end (laughs) any kind of a podcast that deals with this passage without parking on verse six a little bit. And in verse six, Paul says this, I am sure of this. So he's, he's got this absolute confidence and he says this, which should be a tremendous comfort to every believer who hears this. He says, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. And so what does that mean for me? <laughs> that means that in the moments where I feel where I question my salvation, where I question whether or not, you know, I'm authentic, what this is saying, or if you know somebody, you know, who's struggling or backsliding, like this is this assurance that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And so, so Paul is looking at a church that's, you know, still pretty much in its infancy in Philippi. He's in prison. He can't go visit them. He can't go shepherd them. And where does he place his confidence? He doesn't, he doesn't sit in prison going, oh my goodness, I, I hope they're going to be okay. I hope they're going to be okay. I hope they're going to be okay. He says, I'm sure of this. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And there is a tremendous comfort of knowing that, that while we are called to minister and while we're called to shepherd and we're called to be priests to one another, ultimately, the Holy Spirit 
is the one who began the good work, and he will absolutely bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And when we're in ministry, when we're in our families, there is a great comfort and knowing that the Holy Spirit has never lost a passenger, you know, <laughs> really. Right. And, and on the day of glory, he is going to bring that to completion, making that person absolutely glorified and perfect in the sight of God, even if they struggle along the way. And for the people that say, how can it, you know, how can I be absolutely perfect and glorified in the sight of God? It's not just the emphasis on the word will, but it's also the emphasis on the word completion. You know, he who's begun a good work in you will bring it to completion. You know, that's, I look at that and that's just such a comfort to think that I, when I look at myself, Sam, all I can see sometimes it's like Swiss cheese. I see all the holes, all the gaps, mm-hmm. all the things that aren't right. Yeah, we've got some stuff there. There's some substance there, but there's a lot that's missing. And that is going to be taken care of by God. He's going to, mm-hmm. he will bring it, this work to its completion in us. And yeah. you're like, I can't get to the finish line? God will bring you over the finish line. <laughs> but but I, in, that, in that verse, like, there, there's no part for Sam. Like, he yeah. began the work, and he will bring it to completion. It's like, you know, th- I remember talking about this in a previous episode, but I love this. It's, you know, Jesus accomplishes every bit of our salvation. Um, and so it's Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Yes. The the problem is we have to become nothing. <laughs> you yes. know, that's we have to get out of the way. But then it's the spirit who animates us. Uh-huh. You know, he's the one who calls us into salvation. He's the one who sanctifies us on the journey. He's the one who will glorify us on the day of Christ Jesus. And it's all by his grace. It's all by his goodness. It's not by our striving. And so now, you know, it's it's like we we talked about it at the very beginning. Now we're not coming and living out the, the implications of the gospel out of a sense of guilt and fear because he's, he comes to us and he says, it's all me. I got this. I got right. this. I'm, I'm the one who began it. I'm the one who's going to complete it. I've got you. And so now we're called in this freedom, right? We're never going to have to slave away and earn God's favor. We've got it. He's given it to us. And now we get the freedom to run back into the world and love wildly, never having to believe that God's approval is contingent on how good we are, but rather it's how good He is. Right. And and the you know this whole letter, this this passion that Paul has, where he can lay down his life. And interesting, we started talking about oppression. Paul's in his jail actively being oppressed by the Romans, and he concludes his letter rejoicing that his oppressors are coming to faith. Do we have that kind of zeal to where we see his kingdom and his mission as more important than our own? Can we grab hold of that kind of radical mercy and that kind of radical forgiveness and that kind of radical grace that can transform our enemies into friends? Paul had that. Yeah. Paul had that in spades. And I think we would do very well uh, to learn how to live out the gospel by looking at this saint. He's, he is awesome. Mm. 
Well, we'll let that stand as our last word for this week. Uh, this has been week seven of All Things New, our look through the book of Ecclesiastes and the book of Philippians. We hope that you've enjoyed your time with us, that it's been a profitable time for you today. Uh, we encourage you, if you are if you haven't been following along with the messages from uh, the church on Sundays, that you go either to our smartphone app or to our website at riovistachurch.com, or you go to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Church. We've got them all over the place. You can find the messages. Messages all there, and that you get caught up and you keep up. We've got one more week of all things new uh, before we move on to the next series. Um, and and if it's something that you just haven't had the time, I really recommend it. It's been a tremendous series of messages. Some really great teachers in there. Tom took a couple weeks off for his summer vacation in the middle of it, so you get to hear from some of the other teaching elders on our staff. And so um, it's all just really great stuff. So I do encourage you to go to the website and check that out. You will also be able to find all of the back episodes of Out of Water there as well at riovistachurch.com that's r-i-o vistachurch.com forward slash out of water you'll find all the back episodes there so you can get caught up as well sam and i will be back next week with another the final episode in the series all things new and we look forward to seeing you then we hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly you can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater.